Hello and welcome once again to Core Ideas, a paleolimnology podcast where we delve into all things lake sediments. And as always, we are your co-hosts, myself, Adam Jaziorski. And Josh the Inpunt. Thanks for coming back again. And this week, we're doing something slightly different. Uh, we're not going to be actually talking a huge amount about paleo specifically this week. Uh, I guess we're going on a bit of a tangent, uh, starting a new arc uh, that we're going to call Contagious Ideas. <laughs> um, and uh, this is really firing off last week where we tried to talk about paleolimnology in the popular media and it kind of degenerated into a bit of a talk about environmental awareness um, and general attitudes to that so we thought okay we scratched the surface in many ways let's build on that and just you know delve into the timeline and it's interesting in that beginning in like the 1800s it's a very paleo friendly timeline but we're really talking about today a lot of the issues and how they emerge into public consciousness um that we spend a lot of time looking to today with paleo yeah or at least yeah, that's la- the idea yeah i think last week's discussion was uh was an interesting one and we you know we looked at some of the more maybe more recent environmental uh, problems and things that have been directly uh, addressed or attempted to be addressed with paleolimnology. Uh, um, but in that kind of discussion, you end up, you know, going a little bit broader and we, it was a, maybe a, I don't want to say a, a rambly kind of discussion, but it was a very open-ended discussion where we talked about a bunch of different things, uh, which was really interesting. And it brought up some ideas as we were thinking about what we might want to talk about this week of things we might want to uh, delve a little bit deeper on and go a little bit beyond the paleos. We're not going to really try and uh, and say that we can use lake sediments to track the decline in different, different species that have occurred over time. But they're all important in sort of how we get to the environmental awareness that we hope, well, we would hope that a lot of people have in the modern world. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're not going to try and shoehorn in paleo elements to today but you know there's key things like the development of nuclear power which we've talked about or nuclear weapons leading into cesium that's something we can track today but really talking today it's more a bit about how something like the general protest against nuclear weapons and then into nuclear power was fashioned by things like the three mile uh, island accident in chernobyl and Chernobyl definitely left her a paleo record. For sure. And, you know, we get a lot of the things will begin in the Victorian era, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And of course, we can track those sorts of things with paleo techniques and all sorts of different indicators in the sediments can give you an idea of those kind of uh, changes and the onset of those changes. Things like we talked about with the, the Golden Spike for uh, when we would set the onset of the Anthropocene. Um, and and we have to keep that in mind, even if we don't directly mention it. All right. So, uh, you know, in terms of where to begin, I've already mentioned kind of the Victorian era. And I thought it was interesting doing some reading about this. Like, and in, it's one of those things where in your mind, you know this, but then you try and put a timeline together. And it all makes a lot of sense of the transition from nature being something that was subjugated. And you think of like very symmetrical 
Victorian era gardens. It's like we will make nature conform to the way we want it to. And then the earliest roots of, I guess, environmental awareness, environmentalism, I don't know what kind of label you'd want to put on it, but the transition from it being nature being something subjugated to something with intrinsic value of its own potentially being lost, at least in a Western uh, European kind of consciousness setting, really seemed to grow out of pushback against uh, some of the developments of the Industrial Revolution in the uh, mid to late 1800s, really. Yeah, such a rapidly changing time period. It's perhaps not all that surprising that uh, viewpoints and opinions on all sorts of different subjects were also rapidly uh, evolving at that time period, you know, such a, in such a short amount of time going from you know, the way in which people had lived for centuries to a completely different way of life for everything related to economics, uh, innovation, all of those different things. Yeah. What a, what a change in the history of our species and all of the things related to how we impact the environment. The first real uh, large scale potential to cause significant changes to, uh, to the broader environmental setting. Yeah. And so there was a big change, I guess, from, you know, the equivalent of a medieval tannery just being located on the outskirts of the village because of the, uh, you know, short range impacts to, you know, you get to 1863 and you're getting the first real environmental laws coming into effect in response to, you know, gaseous hydrochloric acid being <laughs> released, you know, <laughs> above residential areas effectively. And, and, you know, using the air as an open sewer, on a large, large scale and, um, you know, causing great harm. <laughs> and so it makes sense that it all snapped together very quickly. But all of a sudden, you know, we're not dealing with, you know, you just turn the corner or go around the corner and you don't see what you don't want to see anymore. Like the effects are so much bigger because the scale of um, production was so much bigger yeah. than what I've been seeing yeah, before. Yeah, the, the soot coming off of the blacksmith's forge uh, in in the small town is not going to be of uh, concern to the entire populace of the town, let alone you know the greater county. But when you have factories producing all sorts of different products and and burning coal at you know massive amounts, of course it's going to be recognized by much broader uh, population. And because of that, there's going to be some pushback, and there's going to be the need to introduce some of these different uh, mechanisms to attempt to control that at least by some people will want to do that yeah and i thought it was cool reading up again um you know this is a classic example and he covered in like grade 10 11 biology or very in terms of natural selection at work but the black peppered moths in england um and how you know very rapidly you saw saw a change in response to the vast amounts of soot that were being pumped up into the air that were changing the color of the trees writ large. So you had like black phenotypes that were initially incredibly rare with the first recorded specimen being in 1811, first live specimen being caught in 18 or documented at least live specimen being caught in 1848. But within 50 years, 
the dark colored uh, phenotypes or the black moss um, were uh, in the Man Greater Manchester area being reported at 98% of the total population. Just this complete swing of these really all of a sudden, you know, what was a deleterious, I guess, uh, phenotype because you're e easier to be seen on trees by birds. All of a sudden, you know, that is the way to be if you want to want to uh, live. Yeah, I'm, I mean, yeah, an example that many biology students, well, many, many uh, students are familiar with, but just unbelievable to imagine the change uh, being driven by something like the human production of, of carbon particles. It still, still floors me. And then also, you know, from the 60s onward, have bounced back the other way in, in response to laws and regulations and, you know, societal changes in terms yeah. of that is not cool anymore. Um, and, you know, the uh, dark phenotype is, I'm not sure what the exact numbers are, but it's definitely nowhere near percent anymore. Yeah, clearly a plastic uh, uh, trait in, in that, that species. Hmm. Cool. Uh, and then I guess that the other, you know, we've talked a little bit, I, uh, thinking about the broader ways in which humans were impacting the environment and leading to environmentalism. Those are both really good examples of the production of harmful materials, whether it be um, contaminants related to like soda ash production or carbon emissions from, uh, from factories. At the same time, we also have the kind of mechanization, the large scale industrialization of consuming species, whether that be the hunting of passenger pigeons in North America or the bison, the plains bison in North America, really corresponds to about the same time period, that latter part of the 19th century, uh, where we got to the point where, you know, we could consume species, we could take species out of the environment at uh, industrial scales, just as we were producing, uh, emissions at industrial scales. And because of that, at the same time, we have the onset and the generation of some of the more conservation themed, uh, environmental, uh, protection activities and, and activism in, uh, in many different areas, but a lot of them really centered around the United States in particular. Yeah. Just the idea today that's something like the passenger pigeon, you know, obviously extinct almost a century before we were around, but just that this huge thing like dominated the airs of like Eastern North America in these colossal flocks. And part of it was just, uh, you know, the fact that it was unimaginable to the people that they would ever run out. You know, yeah. Oh, I don't think anyone was thinking, well, let's wipe these things off the face of the earth. You know, it, it must have seemed like an endless resource. And, and you can scale that to all different locations, like uh, the fisheries resources off the Grand Banks and the cod, the Atlantic cod fishery in, in Western or Eastern Canada. It must have just seemed impossible that you could ever uh, depopulate such a bountiful resource. Uh, in the environment, like, cause you know, the passenger pigeon flocks, the claim that it would have taken days for them to fly overhead and, you know, blotted out the sun. How could you, you know, a bunch of people with, with firearms, uh, wipe out such a, such a resource, but yet, you know, they in did. only 
50, 40 years, uh, they were gone. Yeah. And, it, you know, you had some recognition because there were conservation efforts put in place. And in the case of the passive pigeon, they were ineffective. I guess there were various regulations and groups trying to protect it or protect them or control the harvests in some shape or form. Mm -hmm. um, but it just was too little too late in the end and the decline was too precipitous. Yeah. Um, like the tipping point was not recognized until it had been uh, passed, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I don't want to give people a, a free pass. The, the uh, industrial hunting of the plains bison, they were intending to take as many of them as they possibly could. Uh, you know, it wasn't that that uh, uh, they were, you know, not aware of the fact that the numbers were declining every time a hunt would, would go on. So there was definitely a, uh, a selfishness associated with, with all of those efforts. Um, but uh, it certainly spurred a, a conservation movement writ large across the United States and, and other locations as well. And, uh, you know, you just when you look at the numbers like the bison, you know, estimated peak of 25 million down to, you know, less than 600 by the late 1880s. Mm -hmm. And that became something of a success story because unlike the passenger pigeon, bison, still bison exists today. Yeah. There are bison sure. herds today. Um, and very, you know, and then I, I have no real sense of how big the herds are and there are private herds and stuff like that. In terms yeah, it's of, a very complicated resource. A lot but, of them on private land. But, uh, um, you know, and in part that is due to people going, okay, no, 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 there, there are the recognition that there are limits to what can be taken. And, uh, um, you know, they were able to do with the bison, what they weren't able to do with some, some other things. And yeah, uh, some of it for recognizing the fact that these resources have intrinsic value, whether it be the air or the animals or the water, whatever it is. Uh, and then also I think, uh, one of the kind of hallmarks of conservation is not just to say never take any of them. It's to let's do this at a sustainable level so that there are resources for future generations to go and hunt. Uh, maybe not bison so much as, as some at that time period because the precipitous decline. But, you know, that that's the hallmark of conservation for all other game species is, you know, it's not that we never want to take them. We want to take them at a sustainable level, level for in and you know and then these conservation efforts let led into the development of what would become the park systems but what i thought was really crazy if you look at yellowstone national park which would be i guess in many ways the first national park in, in the whole world um and obviously in the united states in 1872 uh some section of it was protected but i guess you know, I'm not a student of American history in any way, shape, or form. No, you know, this is obviously, uh, you know, not very long after the Civil War. But I didn't have in my mind until doing some reading about this how well it slotted in with the general era of westward expansion. And mm -hmm. so I found it crazy that the first detailed expedition to what would become Yellowstone National Park was only a couple of years before in like the 1860s. Yeah. Like, so in many ways, this was, you know, and then I guess you have to look into when like what the date would be of the Louisiana purchase. But this was like, you know, in many ways, uh, um, the wilds, um, still, you know, like, yes, oh, yeah. the industrial revolution has gone on. 
you know, you're having the wiping out of things like the bison and the uh, uh, passenger pigeon. But in many ways, you know, outside of the coastal lines on the map, most of the, in the west, the western interior of North America is largely unexplored. While yeah, many areas for sure. Yes, oh yeah, yes. the, the factories of New England are a world away from yeah. Uh, Wyoming. Yeah, and and I guess putting those two things together, you know, there's a bit of a cognitive distance going on in my mind of like how wild the West was. And how quickly that, that can be uh, brought about that some sort of protection could be, could be put into place three years ago. I mean, think, think about how slowly uh, many legislative processes can occur uh, in the modern world. Three years is a very small amount of time. You cannot establish a new park in uh, <laughs> in that kind of time. Um, well, but also but, because, it, you know, from the, I guess the, uh, from a bureaucratic point of view, it was able to be done because it was new, right? Yeah. No, mm-hmm. no outside of, uh, you know, the indigenous groups that were obviously being displaced by the westward expansion. Yeah. At the same you time, know, having horrible atrocities perpetrated upon them. Yeah. At the same time as they explored and expanded as, west. As expanding west and, you know, um, what is, uh, I forget what the phrase uh, that would go along with that is in terms of the Western expansion. But, uh, you know, that basically a bit of a race was going on. We want to stake our claim here. And then before anybody else can. Uh, Canada would have been the same time period a little bit later, but Algonquin Provincial Park here in Ontario, which is sort of the large uh, area that many, most people are familiar with was established in, again, the late 1900s, 1893. Uh, and the whole American park system, the National Park Service, just established just after uh, the turn of the century in 1905. So really this huge push to, one, take uh, into account some of the uh, emissions and other pollutants that were being produced by the industrialization. And then two, to set aside wild areas to conserve different landscapes, but I don't think it was necessarily um, so organized that you wanted to have some of the like biodiverse areas preserved, as opposed to just larger areas that were fairly untouched and could conserve different species. But sort of in our little timeline and, and history here, this takes us kind of up to what is, I think, an interesting hiatus. Uh, it's not to say that there wasn't any environmentalism or activism about the environment uh, after the creation of the Park Service, but uh, it really does seem like there was uh, a, a decrease in such thinking um, in the in for for quite a long time, actually. Well, so I don't know if it's a decrease in the thinking per se, but it was not at the forefront of um, political concern. Mm-hmm. You know, as you run from, yes, um, and, and, you know, Algonquin, like for a Canadian context, you know, Algonquin Park was established in 1893, the National Park Service being established in the U.S. in 1905. Um, but then there's a bit of a jump because, you know, you have World War I. A couple wars. A Great Depression, yep. World War II. And uh, basically, um, you know, it was not, not, 
top of mind. It was, you know, straight up survival um, and uh, maintaining the airs and the water and the soil kind of just got pushed back in terms yeah. of multiple periods of total war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, losses of generations of, of uh, adults. Yeah, Which is absolutely 100% understandable. And this is like one of these things where you see the various disconnects and, um, you know, thinking of like doing a tie back to early paleontology and there's always, um, when you see some of the earliest paleo limnal work, there's always some reference to like work done in the English Lake District in the early 1940s. And I always have a huge disconnect with that of like, um, was there a war on? <laughs> yeah, it's like how, how how you know like I'm sure they were very far removed from the Blitz and stuff, but like in terms of my family history connections to the war and stuff, just the idea of you know just going out and doing science and working on your PhD during the Blitz and D Day and all of that kind of stuff yeah. just seems so. I'm sure there were lots. There was Bizarre. lots to read in the newspaper when you were having your lunch. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and, you know, you know, just different worlds going on at the same time. But anyway, yeah, you're you you're know. writing in your notebook. Took core today. Read the <laughs> Allies stormed Anzio. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it just it's baffling to kind of process how how. how and I'm sure in many places around the world, the war seemed very far away. But, uh, yeah. But anyway, but because of those, in terms of, you know, headline level stuff, there's a fairly big gap. And so we kind of, um, when we slice this all up, we're talking about, like, you know, environmental activism and the Industrial Revolution slash Western expansion. And then there's a big jump until the post-war great acceleration and the impact that had on Uh, broader environmental activism. And this is where we get back uh, a little bit closer to some of the things we started talking about on the last episode related to acid rain and and things like that. And much of it, uh, what what I originally would have thought, uh, started with Silent Spring, which is uh, the book by Rachel Carson uh, that we've referenced a couple times in in this. But it turns out actually the World Wildlife Fund was uh, founded before that, which I had no idea. And just uh, so 1962 would be when Silent Spring was published, and the World Wildlife Fund, uh, 61. And I yeah. think it grew out of something even a bit earlier, which makes sense. Well, I mean, things like the Sierra Club were established in the 1890s. Yeah, oh, so yeah, there were environmental kind of, activism groups for sure. Um, they existed, but uh, yeah, for whatever reason, with the WWF, with the uh, I, I'd always thought it was a slightly newer thing than that or mm-hmm. in part a response to the the sentiments whipped up in the yeah like, like in the, the yeah spring. exactly not too long after that and uh so yeah so for those that are unfamiliar uh silent spring um was largely um a i guess we t- you today refer to like a popular science book yeah um, that was focused on the impact of uh, pesticides, particularly things like DDT that were having on the broader environment. Um, and the Silent Spring is a reference to basically the birds being eliminated. Mm-hmm. 
because uh-huh. of the softening of eggshells and all that kind of stuff that um, those organochlorine pesticides um, result in. And so, yeah, so pesticides would be one big thing that I, I you know, with that, when I think of what galvanized what we think of as the environmental activism today, there'd be a couple of, I guess, key issues. One being uh, pesticide use, uh, another being uh, acid deposition, so acid rain, basically. Uh, the eutrophication or fertilization of, uh, I guess, fresh waters and coastal waters. Um, and uh, it's not always lumped in with the other ones, but I always think the um, impacts of lead and gasoline yeah. slots right in in terms of the same general timeline. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, identifying, so you get like, a couple of different um, components to that. There's the human health part because you know you think about the poisoning of animals, uh, and the linkage to humans is an easy one to uh, to be concerned about, and that ties into the leaded gasoline and and just huge amounts of lead in the environment, uh, resulting in potential for all sorts of uh, negative human health impacts, including birth defects and all those kind of things. Neurological issues. Yeah. And, uh, and then the second being the potential loss of, I wouldn't say keystone species, but more charismatic species. So again, you know, in the same way of the conservation aspect, uh, not hearing birds in the springtime is something that's very easy to imagine or seeing the loss of fish from lakes due to acidification or fish kills in coastal zones because of uh, huge eutrophication and, and anoxia. So you get this kind of uh, interest and, and fixation on realizing the potential for harm to organisms that we're familiar with and, and really uh, enjoy. And because of that, there's the potential to galvanize public opinion again. And uh, as always, bringing in our nerdy interests, I, I, did, I was not aware of this since you told me, but that... Uh, um, Silent Spring was also one of the inspirations for the novel Dune by Frank Herbert. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is what my I would I would say my favorite book probably. It's one that I, uh, I mean the the one of the quotes from it, which is actually not in the main book, but is related to ecology, is at the beginning of my PhD thesis, and I actually have it on a board on the wall behind me here. Um, but it, it's been referred to a. For in a bunch of different ways, so it's been referred to as the Sand County Almanac in in space, which is a, a book from the 30s by Aldo Leopold on conservation, um, and and it's well documented that Herbert was uh, highly influenced by all the goings on at this time, including Silent Spring, even though some of the book had obviously been written by 1962, uh, but just the environmentalism and and the linkage to taking things that were happening on earth and setting them in a different context in a science fiction sort of fantasy perspective, but being able to, um, bring those ideas out. And it's a very popular novel right away. Uh, and one that caused, uh, an environmental knowledge in an audience that may not have been, you know, uh, so up on reading silent spring, for example, but did read this book and, and got a little bit out of that. So, so we there opening night whenever the new set like oh year, absolutely comes absolutely okay. i will be first in line <laughs> I, I i'm not that i don't you know go to movies on opening weekend uh even once that i'm interested in the franchise but this will be the the exception 
Will you be wearing a homemade still suit? How are they they do look pretty cool. They do. No, I'm not. I, I'm not really a cosplayer. Uh, but hey, you never know. Yeah. It looks like it'd be good. We'll have to have an episode on it all. <laughs> it's our, you know, this is our hobby driven podcast. That's right. We can, uh, we can cross, cross the streams anytime. That's right. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but in and, that time period, there's like, early 60s well the 60s yeah. uh and the identification of a bunch of different environmental uh, challenges for sure I'm, and then in response to that there was a, a real proliferation of uh environmental activism groups many of which we know the names of now yeah um so the biggest one i guess or i don't know the one I, yes most i guess Hugest amount of mind share, I guess, would be one way to do it. Would be uh, Greenpeace, which was established in six, somewhere between sixty nine and seventy two. I guess it depends on where you exactly put the beginnings, but it was itself an offshoot of the Sierra Club. Um, and then a little bit later, um, when we talk about, I guess, you know, issues, environmental issues of public consciousness, a big one uh, becoming Save the Whales, and so then the Sea Shepherds. Uh, themselves were in turn an offshoot of Greenpeace, I guess, a decade later in the late 70s. Yeah, still earlier than I imagined for some reason, too. Yeah. So basically, um, that, that's what I've learned from this uh, research and, and thinking about this episode is that most of these organizations are older than I thought they were. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, it's funny when you go uh, and like try and piece the timeline together and in many ways, you know, the early 60s was just a seminal period in history and, you know, culturally in a bunch oh, yeah. of ways. And so it's like, you know, like Silent Spring in 62, going back to the peppered moths, it's like, you know, the uh, um, the increases that referred to earlier really seem to date back to the early 60s. It's just, you know, public consciousness brought this to the forefront, which in turn, you know, protest movements, you know, Oh yeah. Um, so many things, activism, voting, like stuff got done. Yeah. Um, definitely. and, uh, you know, and it was a time of, um, I guess extremes. So you'd have like Sudbury, uh, you know, due to acid deposition, uh, just devegetated. Yeah, uh, so much so that the, they were training for the moon in Sudbury. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's kind of funny. I've, it comes up every every time I look into this. Apparently, so the moon, landing on the moon uh, in 1969, so late 60s, same kind of time, you had NASA training astronauts in Sudbury. Apparently had more to do with geological formations than the fact that it looked like a moonscape. It was something sp- Just the rocks where they expected would be... Similar. Uh, I don't know if it's a okay. Now I'm, you know, getting. Well, it makes sense. Talking out, talking about my butt a, uh, a fair bit here, but it's going to be. I think because the Subbury formations is a big impact crater. Right? Yeah, massive. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's something related to that, which is hmm. why they had NASA there. But I guess the popular, you know, so yeah, learned something down into why is like oh because it looks like the moon. And it's like well, it's not that it looks like the moon. But yes, it does kind of look like the moon. Hmm. Yeah. Makes sense, though. 
You can quote me on that. Um, and then <laughs> I'm going to, I will be mentioning this in my geomorphology class starting in the fall. Excellent. I don't even know what geomorphology means. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, but then at the same time, uh, eutrophication, um, we're dealing with, you know, I guess, the highly publicized quote-unquote death of Lake Erie would fall into this time due to um, over-fertilization um, and the quest to identify, or not the quest, I guess, uh, maybe it's a quest, different sides of what was the primary um, uh, nutrient responsible for a lot of eutrophication of like, was it nitrogen? Was it phosphorus? Yeah. Was Huge vested interest, you know, led to the formation of the experimental lakes area, or in many, in, in large part, led to the formation of the experimental lakes area in 1968, which we've talked a bit, a little bit about, and that's where you have like the super iconic photo in limnology of the lake separated by the, by a curtain, to, and on one side, uh, fertilizing it with carbon and nitrogen, and the other side, carbon and phosphorus, and just to see what was. What was the cause for these kind of algal blooms? Yep. Um, you had, I, I guess, this would be around the same time that you had the equivalent of like the Detroit River catching on fire due to improper um, treatment of. I'm, I have no idea what that would have been attributable to in terms of what I'm not sure were that led actually. to the water and the river actually catching on fire. But you know, all this kind of stuff all came to a head at the same time. Yeah, but like what an image to galvanize public opinion. Yeah, rivers catching on fire. It's, like, it's tough, very tough to peddle a message of, move along, nothing to see here. It's like, yeah. the river's on fire. <laughs> what are we going to put it out with? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, the same way in like the oil spill, kind of uh, the deep water horizon 50 or 40 years later. Um yeah, those are images that stick in people's heads. Yeah, and so yeah, so the big ones we mentioned already, uh, the um, uh, resistance to nuclear power or just nuclear in general. In general, like initially, it was totally focused on nuclear weapons, but grew more writ large. And then you had like the accidents of Three Mile Island in the seventies and Chernobyl, which uh, happened much later in the eighties. So I. You know, that ties in with Greenpeace. Uh, Save the whales became a you know a serious slogan of uh, in the environmental um, movement in general, and that in part led in many ways. I'm not sure what what the uh, why it was the Sea Shepherd split off to become their own thing, but that obviously was their focus. Raison yeah. d'etre in many ways. Mm-hmm. And we talk about changing public consciousness and you mentioned Dune as one of your favorite novels. Uh, Moby Dick is actually one of mine. And this is kind of pretty uh, um, crystallizes just the general change in popular sentiment. You have Moby Dick in terms of, you know, one of the all time great adventure stories slash whaling textbooks. Written in Um, 1851. Yeah. um, You know, describing in incredible detail how brutal whaling actually was and the harpooning everything about the shape of harpoons and the rigging of the ship and like (laughs) you know um, rendering down a whale (laughs) yeah chopping a 
whale up that was bigger. It's an anatomy know, textbook too. Yeah. To, to the boat that they were uh, um, capturing them on and then rendering them down for the fat, the oil to bring back. And it's like a great, uh, you know, commercial endeavor and just good fun. That's um, it. And then sh- jump ahead to uh, uh, 1986 and Star Trek Four, And it's like, <laughs> you know, the whales are extinct and we have to, you know, fly <laughs> back in time, slingshotting around the sun in order to bring two whales from the eighties to save all of humanity because yeah. they, the morons, they, they killed them all. They killed all the whales. <laughs> we need these two humpbacks to, to be brought back to the future in order to save future earth. So they pick San Francisco of all San Francisco, right? Yeah. The golden. I think so. In it. Yep. Yeah. See all the hippies, uh, yeah. tying into the, like <laughs> the, uh, uh, anti-war protests we've been talking about a little bit. Yeah, and so. uh, there you go. Put them onto a, 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 a Klingon warbird and there yeah. you go. And so, yeah, so I think it just, uh, you know, encapsulates, you know, 130 years between those two things and just the uh, the mind shift, you know, at least in popular culture, whatever that's worth. Who knows how well they would have done if you reverse the release dates, but um, uh, <laughs> not well. <laughs> Um, Except to yeah. show TV to people in 1850. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, just, you know, nature, nature will bring nature to heal versus nature is our salvation. Yeah. It's kind of a, an interesting kind of spin on the whole thing. All related to whales. Yeah. Um, that was a digression. Yeah. And so then I guess we're getting closer and closer to, uh, the periods of time that Josh and I actually remember here, as opposed, although I do remember going to see as a kid, uh, Star Trek four in the, in the theaters, but I was one year old when that movie was released. So yeah, yeah, I would have been eight. And, uh, um, I definitely remember going and probably mostly went over my head other than like the spaceship bits. Yeah. It's a good movie though. Yeah. I've not seen it in so long. I'm totally going to look it up after this. I think it's on, I think on Netflix. I'm not sure. I actually did check that. Uh, it is not. The ah. shows are, but the movies are not. The movies are, it must be on somewhere else. They can be found. <clears throat> and anyway, as we go. Yeah, anyway, exactly. As we um, move into the modern time period. Yeah. So now we're remember, you know, into the period of actual memory for uh, the pair of us. Um, a big one that I kind of refer to a lot in the work that I do is the impact of the Clean Air Act in 1990. All of a sudden... You had a binational response to um, um, acid deposition in a big way. And, you know, in many ways, acid rain is a, a, you know, a good news story, I guess. I guess we never really mentioned the ozone layer as a separate, and that would also fall into the thing. But the ozone layer is, by and large, a good news story that seems to be, uh, because, I mean, as a kid, I definitely remember, you know, this will grow on you thinking of like the doomsday kind of, you follow the narrative to the extreme. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Eventually everyone will, you know, die of cancer instantly yep. kind of thing as it's gone. And, and it's now, a slow heal, but it is moving in the right direction. Uh, acid deposition. Mm, it's definitely not. Definitely movement has been in the right direction. 
there's all kinds of issues related to the legacy of acid rain, but you know, acid sulfate deposition in general. Um, yeah, especially for sulfate. Yeah. And again, we have our own biases here being uh, Canadian, but uh, in East and North America is much less of a thing than it was. Uh, other regions of the world it is still a, a big, big issue. Yeah. More of an emerging concern there. Yep. Um, but as, but then, you know, events continue to happen. And Josh mentioned it earlier, uh, following this timeline, we had the Atlantic cod collapse in 1992 is when the moratorium, uh, was enacted, uh, with the biomass down to something like 1% of the, uh, what it was historically. I don't know very much about this. I have vague recollections of this being in the news. I've, the I've also vaguely remember that. Like this is the time period that I start to remember more um, kind of national or international uh, news uh, personally and, and have a vague recollection of seeing people, you know, on the news fighting with their, with politicians over the moratorium. Yeah. And I, I understand it's like been, so that slant, what was that, 1992, pushed almost 20 years. I think they teased opening it a little while, a couple of years ago, but it's still... Well, there is some, like 20 there's, years. there's very limited, not like harvesting in the way it was, but there is some harvest of cod, uh, but from different mechanisms, you know, the trawling of them is, is not going to happen for a while. But it's not a good news story yet. No, no, it's a complicated issue for sure. And then I guess we move into the, you know, the, the modern era and the, whatever we call it, the information revolution. Is that the current term for it? And really we, we talk about these global concerns. Um, it's not about hunting of one species in one area to uh, endangerment or extinction. It's about the greenhouse gas emissions at a global scale. Uh, even if it's not synchronous and or it's not uh, uh, uniform in where those emissions are coming from, it's still mostly de the developed world, but it's a global problem. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, although it's kind of funny in many ways, I don't know if I've talked about this in the podcast before, but uh, um, thinking about, you know, climate change as it's um, as like a post 2000s kind of era, but that's when it became a real political issue. Like I remember doing a science project on what was then largely referred to in the, as the greenhouse effect mm -hmm. um, in grade seven, maybe. So that would be in the very late eighties um, on books pulled out from the library. Like it wasn't a fringe thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, absolutely not. And it was like a well-known thing and it was just, but it was very much, who cares? A problem for the future. That's yeah. a problem for future Earth kind of thing. Yeah. Um, outside of the people ringing an alarm bell, and then global warming and climate change became, I guess, a bit more uh, uh, commonly known phrases. And then you had the release of, I guess, an inconvenient truth in two thousand six, and at least in an American context, it just became. It went from being a global health issue to a political issue. Yeah. Basically. Almost overnight. I mean, it, it always was, but that there was always a, a political like, slant on it. But uh, that was just yeah. like Team Red, Team Blue. These are our our points on it, and game on. Yeah. Um, yeah, literally overnight. 
Um, so yeah, so in issues to deal with today, we also have overpopulation. And I always think this is kind of crazy thinking of, well, okay, beginning of our story or this episode in the early 1800s, talking about 1 billion people on the planet. My parents were born in the 50s. There are about 3 billion people on the planet. I was born in the 70s. 4 billion people on the planet. Uh, my kids are born in the last couple of years, and there's now 8 billion people on the planet. Like the so compared, so truly parent to grandparent, you know, there's quadruple the number of people on the planet just for my parents. Like, yes, we don't know anyone alive from, you know, the early 1800s right now, but especially in this uh, uh, coronavirus world we're living in right now, I'm talking to my parents every day and yeah, <laughs> or almost every day. And uh, yeah, you know, just the crazy that, you know, looking to like on our way to triple the number of people from the day that, that they were born. Yeah. And that presents real challenges, no doubt for everything, not just for, uh, you know, the, the common things about emissions that we talked about and feeding that many people, but at every, every level, um, that's, that's, uh, something to be planned for or dealt with. There's not all. I think that seems to be a common thread for all this. Is it's very little proactive. It's always reactive. It does. Yeah, it does seem like that. I mean, I'm sure you could pick out a couple of examples uh, in there that have been semi. No, not really. Not many of them. Looking back over the list. Yeah, the exception be an exception to the rule, but really, it's like it's like will the point of no return be crossed? Seems to be the thing, and then. You know, passermigen, yes. Bison, almost. Dodo, yes. Humpback whales, no. But it's uh, not... Uh, Ozone uh, layer, no. You know. Yeah. So in terms of the timeline, so I guess, yeah, the big modern mindshare, big mindshare issues of the day, climate change, overpopulation. Um, one that you're seeing more and more of on a global context is plastic pollution. Yeah. Which um, we talked about uh, last time. A little bit. Uh, it, it maybe lost a little bit of the, the everyday discussion on genetically modified uh, organisms, though it's certainly still out there. Um, but that certainly uh, not too long ago was a very common topic to be considered. But I think we've, I don't know, I'm sure there's still people uh, going on about GMO um, organisms. But uh, it seems like that's died down a little bit. Yeah, well, I think it was one of those things where I don't think it ever had the universality of like a climate change. Mm -hmm. Like depending on who you're talking to today, you'd still have to begin with an explainer, right? As but what a genetically modified organism is. Yeah, and mm -hmm. why why it's a problem or not a problem or um, what the issue is, I guess. Whereas um, there are very few people that I ever encounter that. You know, no matter what side of the red-blue divide they would fall on in terms of the importance of climate change, I was going to go, "What? What are you talking about?" <laughs> like, you know, we're at a point now that everyone knows exactly what that issue is. Yeah, which I don't think is the case for GMOs. That's fair, uh, but we also, I guess, are—I don't know—whether uh, it's the the shift in the media cycle and the 24 hour news and the prevalence of social media and everyone has a, you know, YouTube page and things like that, that we really or a podcast. do or a podcast. Yes. 
<laughs> exactly. Um, that we really have, I don't know. And I'm sure it was the same. It would have been the same if all of these tools had been available during the protest movements of the sixties. Uh, but there are some, some pretty, uh, powerful activism forces out there. The, the Greta, Greta Thunbergs of the world, um, and uh, and more locally than that, we have lots of different examples of uh, people fighting for the environment, and uh, and that's a thing to be celebrated. I think. I think Greta Thunberg is such an interesting um, story. Like, at least in my own kind of perception, because when she first kind of blew up onto the scene, I was like, pretty meh, you know, like. You know, how old is, how old was she when she was making international headlines? Like she's like sixteen. Sixteen? Yeah. No, so she'd been like fourteen? I don't know. Or something like that when we would first heard her. And it's like, okay, she's making a stink, I'm sure. She's being well managed in order for me to have heard about her kind of thing. And I was like, meh, meh. But uh, you know, a year or two later, I'm you know, like personal year in twenty nineteen, at my my uh perception has massively changed in terms of like she she moved the needle in a way that you know no one else. so who cares I, I do not I'm not particularly interested in how much of an individual is versus how managed she is but like you know she moved the com- conversation in in a way that you know has not been done since silent spring i'd say yeah, anyways for like, sure the the protests when you know the global days of action related to climate change and the the school walkouts on fridays that still go on it's, it's not something that's done i'm sure we've taken a bit of a pause as not right now the world yeah exactly that's what i mean the world has taken a uh, a bit of a pause on all sorts of different topics um but that's a long long time that that continues and the number of people at some of those marches in, in different cities around the world is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's some, it's interesting in terms of, you know, the fact that Neil got pushed cause she leaned so heavily into the red blue mm-hmm. divide or not lean, but, did not shy away when the uh, um, president of the United States was like, you know, trying to slam dunk on her. Yeah. You know, yeah, she is in and got, <laughs> and then got responses as opposed to being ignored, which I think is what kind of really like made it so big. Yeah. And, it, and it's fascinating. I'm sure there'll be, you know, when all is said and done, when the world goes back to some semblance of normality, whatever normal is, but like it returns from like the current virus induced lockdown that we're, uh, we're sitting in. Um, what will happen on the, uh, you know, the Greta file and the environmental file going forward in terms of has momentum, her, some momentum there potentially been lost again, you know, it's like events, dear boy, events in terms of the way that the wars and the Great Depression, particularly, I guess I'm thinking here in terms of the Great Depression, like, you know, financial issues pushed, pushed things onto the back burner 
And are we on the uh, cusp of something similar happening? Yeah, I think that's not a bad place to to kind of wrap up this discussion is just the unknown associated with, you know, where we are at the moment in this everything coronavirus, everything COVID-19. Uh, what is the the future? Do we go back to where we were? Do we accelerate back into, you know, back to the economy? Let's get the stock market as high as it can go. All of those things. Do we go a different direction? Where do we find ourselves for these uh, these topics? Uh, and the the jury is still out on that one. Yeah. Well, I think one of my takeaways from all of this uh, is you know, how irrelevant the performance of the stock market is to the general populace in many ways. It's like, it's chugging along just fine without people. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not saying that. Being away. It's like, uh, but I mean, from an industrial, you know, as production globally ramps back up, uh, which it will do at some point, whether it's a year from now, whether it's whatever, um, where we put our energies yeah, it'd be interesting. Uh, what kind of mark um, this two-month hiatus will have in terms of all, you know, just bring this back into like normal paleo. Like, will spring of 2020, what kind of uh, paleo-limnological f- fingerprint is it going to be leaving going forward with production ramping down on, not completely, but you know, you know, air travel is shut down. Um, oh yeah, there's no doubt that emissions will will yeah, be low. Are, how low is it, is it going to be? Oh, like I mean, it, it's 2016 you know, low, or you know, like yeah, uh, no, no, it's it's a, a small decrease in a continuing to increase trend. I just rolled the clock, and so 2020 is just like a couple of years. Oh, probably a not years ago, yeah. or, or a uh, um, a bigger one. I don't know. That'd be something. I don't know. Very interesting to see how that all plays Yeah, well, out. it still does depend on how long this continues. Uh, but we are, you know, we're pushing it something like that. But it's not it's not decades. And anything else you want to talk about on this kind of front? No, it's been I, very think much a, I think it's been a good... A rambling timeline, I guess, of things that we found interesting on this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and I, I learned some things on this one, actually. Yeah, I think it's interesting for me, largely putting it on a timeline. Because I don't think there was too many things that I had not at least heard of before mm-hmm. that we, we covered today, like had some level of interest. But what was interesting was trying to put them together in a jigsaw puzzle. And then it's like, you know, I think I mentioned, you know, I already talked about a little bit earlier with like the westward expansion in the U.S. happening around, you know, like there were many ways exploring Yellowstone, you yeah. know, like just a couple of years before declaring it a park. It's like that kind of, that kind of blew my mind a little bit of, Okay, I really don't have a good timeline for that. I think it's that neat how, how there are these like nodes of acceleration in some of these thinking. So the initial one we talked about and then all of these changes in the 60s. And now well, I would argue we're hopefully at one of those right now um, related to, uh, you know, all different things coming together, social, economic, political, whatever they may be. Um yeah, it's interesting to see that they kind of coalesce around these points in, in history. And I guess, yeah, one last thing, just going back, uh, that I thought I'd touch on, but it didn't really slide in really nice, really well. 
in any way, but also talking about the Greta Thunberg um, issue would be um, scientists don't make good spokespeople. Uh, some do, and, but, but many don't. Uh, by and large, yeah. by and large, don't make good spokespeople. And uh, um, that is probably an, another element of her elevation, I guess, into the public consciousness. Yeah, because she is not a lab coat wearing scientist. Oh, she's, she's a kid. Yep. Speaking of lab coats or, or uh, things, what was this about this T-shirt that you uh, had a great idea for? Well, it's kind of what I was trying to turn the conversation to uh, with this. Um, because that whole, you know, uh, public sentiment. Uh, we talked about the bacon and egg heads talks going like science as activists or not scientists as activists in various levels. Um, and uh, um, a paper, I think we mentioned it last time, written by my supervisor, John Small, looking at, um, uh, you know, getting involved, getting the message out. So this I, contagious ideas um, how do you spread the word and get people to listen to you? Um, and one of the things I thought was interesting is like the, the public view of academics is, is really quite high. And then one of my own thoughts related to that is, um, uh, is that high esteem related to a lack of outreach? And is it a case of Schrodinger's academic esteem? It's like, <laughs> You know, you are believed because you never say anything. Um, but once you start talking, uh, that esteem will evaporate. I love and it. That could be walk- worked into a core ideas t- uh, t-shirt somehow. That we'll we'll be Josh taking orders. Uh, we won't be able to fulfill them <laughs> until uh, until all of this craziness ends and we can find Until they can be made in massive cool. factories on production lines of the millions. That's right. Uh, but, but look out for those in the not too, hopefully not too distant future. Schrodinger's academic esteem t-shirts core ideas branded yeah I'll be wearing mine for sure yeah cool but uh, I guess anything else any, on that note any mail uh, no, in the I, bag this week I don't think so well, let me check the mail bag click 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 there's nothing in the mail bag huh. shocking so we'll, ch- we'll check again next week yeah but we have had some uh, uh, Twitter Twitter responses which is kind of cool um, and, uh, Shout as out to always, Josh Gurick, uh, this week, the Twitter follower of the week, TV. uh, who liked our, uh, Adams, Adam does all of the, uh, graphics, um, of, uh, us on TV from an old picture from pals. We talked about a couple weeks ago, but, uh, um, but yeah, um, if you, hopefully you like this episode, uh, it's a little bit of a divergence for what we normally do. Um, but we love feedback, so give us a shout out um, at uh, easiest way or most direct way would be on Twitter. Um, at Core Ideas Paleo, P A L E O. Something longer can be sent to us by email um, at Core Ideas Podcast at gmail.com. You can check out all the old show notes on coreideas.ajazyarski.ca, but I think. You can get you can find a link to that on the Twitter. I guess Twitter, I guess, would be the landing page for any kind of contact for us, and then you can spread out from there. But we do have the website if you ever wanted to look back at old episodes or old shows. Yeah, and this uh, is old notes. As we said, this is the first 
first episode in our third arc on uh, contagious ideas. And and we're going to expand a little bit. We'll go back to some paleo science uh, in a couple weeks. We're going to spread these out a little bit just because they're taking a little more research than the uh, the initial ones. So it'll be a couple weeks between episodes. But I think next time we're going to talk about some historically significant papers and projects um, and uh, kind of delve into some of those classics. And we'll begin with the ones that we think are really interesting. So key stuff, I guess, like ELA. Yeah. Kind of ELA will figure prominently. But as always, if you think we're missing anything, uh, let us know. Sounds good. And if not, everyone take care out there. And uh, we will be back in in a little bit. And um, stay safe. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And catch you next time.